Well, in the 2004 British comedy, Shaun of the Dead, a downtrodden electronic salesman named Shaun gets up one morning to get a snack. He's a little hungover, so he doesn't realize as he walks to the store that overnight the world has been taken over by zombies. It's actually a common plot device. Uh, lots of movies and TV shows play around this, with this idea that the apocalypse has started uh, without us even knowing it. <laughs> In fact, as the condition of our world grows more and more, how shall we say, severe, uh, you would be forgiven for wondering the question for real. Has the end of the world already begun without us even knowing it? I mean, we know that the world will end, right? The earth cannot keep spinning indefinitely around a slowly expanding sun. But with artificial intelligence and climate change and global pandemics and nuclear weapons, you gotta wonder, has the end of the world already started? If we're asking that, we wouldn't be the first. 2,000 years ago, the people in Thessalonica wondered the same thing. They thought that maybe the end of the world had maybe started. Understandably, it freaked them out. They didn't know what to do. I mean, what do you do when the end of the world is upon you? Do you go grab a snack? Get your shotgun? What do you do if you think the end of the world is upon you? Well, you talk to your pastor. And that's what the Thessalonians did. They asked their pastor, a guy named Paul, what they should do, and Paul writes them a letter. Now, we'll talk about what Paul says in his letter in a second, but first, if you're just joining us, let me bring you up to speed. We're in a series right now called More and More, in which we're studying a guy named Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Now, Paul was an early Christian missionary, he started the church in Thessalonica before he got kicked out of the city for seditious activities. But Paul had formed a real bond with the young Christians in this small church, and he remained in touch uh, through heartfelt letters. And in these epistles, Paul offers instruction and encouragement and prayer, and he also answers some, some questions from his congregation, one of which was, has the end of the world started? And if so, what do we do? Now, you should know that the passage in which Paul addresses this question is actually one of the most difficult in all of Paul's letters. And it's so complicated that we've broken it up into three sections. Last week, Jeremy kind of kicked off at the first section. This morning, we're going to look at the second section and then do the third section next week. But as we jump into the second section this morning, I do want to read to you last week's passage as well to give ourselves a little bit of a running start. So let me go ahead and share with you 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or, or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? 
And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Oh boy. This is a, a big, chunky piece of text. What is happening? Well, as Jeremy introduced to us last week, it, it seems that the Thessalonians, who were some combination of Jewish and Gentile or non-Jewish Christians, believed something known as the day of the Lord had already happened. Now, the day of the Lord is a dreadful day prophesied in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, a day on which the God of Israel would exercise his wrath and initiate judgment on the earth. The Hebrews called it Yom Yahweh. And they longed for this day. They longed for this day because they had been subjected to centuries of violence and persecution from various enemies and overlords. Maltreatment that just never seemed to end. Through the Jewish prophets, though, God had promised them that such persecution would not last forever. One day, the day, the day of the Lord, God would arrive to redeem his people. Now, this wouldn't all happen necessarily on a single day, though. Rather, the day of the Lord would be a period of time. The word day can mean that. It can mean period or era. A period of time during which God would begin his march. And God's heavenly armies would march forth over the land. And somehow the Thessalonians had gotten it into their minds that that era had begun. You know, maybe something happened in Jerusalem or maybe something happened in Rome, which they interpreted as inaugural events of the day. And it freaked them out. Paul says that they were alarmed and unsettled. You see, as much as the Israelites look forward to the day of the Lord, it's mostly described in the Old Testament as a day of violence and bloodshed, a day that you should probably avoid if you have the chance. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, for example, wrote a lot about this day. In Isaiah chapter 13, he describes it like this. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. This was the day of the Lord the Israelites anticipated. 
And as exciting as it might be to see God judge his enemies, the Thessalonians had very legitimate fears that they might somehow get swept up in the violence. We can empathize. We can empathize here. For starters, we are as fascinated by the end of the world as any group of people ever has been, maybe even more. Some of our favorite stories and movies and TV shows and comic books are about the end of the world. Comets or zombies or global thermal nuclear war. Imagine, though, believing that it has already started, as the Thessalonians did. Like I said, we don't have to work too hard to imagine that, that the end of the world has already started. I was meeting with a, a visitor who had attended our newcomer's luncheon last Sunday, getting to know him a little bit. And uh, he told me that he had actually moved with his family to St. Louis in 1999 uh, to work with Southwestern Bell on their Y2K project. Anybody remember Y2K? Many of us literally thought the world was going to end at midnight on December 31st, 1999. We had the day and the second down. Planes would crash into the ocean. The power grid would fail. Mass hysteria. Dogs and cats living together. We actually thought that was going to happen. We were living in the end times. Now it's not Y2K that we worry about. It's other threats. Artificial intelligence, global warming, pandemics. But the threat is real. In fact, in a Pew Research survey taken last year, four out of 10 Americans, 39% of Americans, believe that we are living in the end times. Four out of 10 Americans believe that we're living in the end times. The Thessalonians thought they were too. <laughs> and they weren't taking it well. They were kind of freaking out. Some of them had stopped going to work. Because they didn't see the point. Some were living sexually immoral lives because time was short. You might as well, you know, live it up. And this is why Paul writes to them. And he writes to do two things primarily. First, he writes to comfort them. Take a chill pill, he says. Even if the world is ending, you need to relax. And second, he writes to clarify the situation. He writes to correct them. He says that the day of the Lord cannot have come. Jeremy talked about this last week, but it bears repeating because we're going to dig in a little bit more. The day of the Lord cannot have happened because two important precursor events also prophesied in Scripture have not taken place. What two events? Well, as Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So the end cannot come because something called the rebellion has not occurred and someone named the man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. What on earth is Paul describing? <laughs> well, maybe you have this experience when you read the Bible. I certainly do sometimes. But when you read the Bible, sometimes it feels like you're, you're entering an alien world. And this is one of those times. You see, there is a deep tradition in the Hebrew scriptures known as apocalypticism. And apocalypticism is the study and the contemplation of signs which might predict the end of the world. Several of the Old Testament books are apocalyptic books in which God reveals aspects of the future to seers and prophets. I've already mentioned Isaiah, but Ezekiel, 
Daniel, Zechariah were all apocalyptic prophets. These books were written in periods of great national distress during which Jews were looking for hope that their suffering might someday end. And through the prophets, God gives them that hope. But he also prepares them for the reality that their suffering might actually have to increase before the end can truly come. Basically, it has to get worse before it gets better. Paul calls this the rebellion. But it can also be translated as the apostasy. According to the prophets, there will be some kind of moral rebellion during which the full measure of humanity's sin will be realized. It might even involve a great exodus from the people of God as Christians walk away from the faith. And along with this rebellion would come the appearance of a man of lawlessness. And this unnamed individual is called the man of lawlessness because he will embody immorality and rejection of God's law. Lawlessness is at his very center. That's what he represents, the man of lawlessness. I, for example, am a man of compassion. This is a man of lawlessness, though. Now, who is this man? This man of lawlessness. It's him. It's Greg. No, it's not Greg. <clears throat> we don't know. We have no idea. But later down in this passage, Paul offers a description of this guy. We learn that this man will be quite a piece of work. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. The man will claim to be some kind of divine figure, maybe even in the temple of God. And the man will be in league with Satan himself to persuade people to join his cause. As the apostle goes on, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Now, if you read your New Testaments, you know that this figure is referred to in other ways too. John, later in the New Testament, calls this guy the Antichrist. Revelation calls him the beast. The prophet Daniel calls him a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue. The man of lawlessness goes by many names in Scripture. Now, I got to level with you. I got to admit to you that the idea that a single individual could amass so much power in the world to deceive so many seems a bit fanciful to me. I mean, this seems like some type of movie script we're reading. Are we supposed to believe that some singular human being will eventually gain so much power that he is worshipped as a god by vast swaths of humanity? Are we to believe that intelligent modern people like us will follow some demagogue into idolatry, violence, and immorality? Are we that dumb? We absolutely are. We absolutely are. In fact, plenty of human demagogues have appeared on the scene and used all kinds of tricks and lies to lead people into immorality and violence, proclaiming themselves above the law, even as divine. We're not so enlightened that this can't happen. 
Something like it has happened many, many times. In fact, ancient Jews actually had plenty of experience with men of lawlessness. Paul's description of this person is actually based on historical examples. For instance, uh, maybe you've heard of a Greek general named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Indeed, boo. Boo to Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. There's a lot of syllables crammed into that name. Antiochus was a, a Greek king who ruled the Seleucid Empire in the second century BC. And the Seleucid Empire included Jerusalem and Judea, the, the home of the Jews. And this guy was brutal and ruthless. Antiochus found the Jews annoying and difficult. So here's what he did. Antiochus marched into Jerusalem with his armies. He entered the Jewish temple. He killed a bunch of priests. He shut down the sacrifices. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies, desecrating the temple. Remember, this is what Paul says the man of lawlessness will do. He will set himself up in the temple. Antiochus's act was so heinous that it inspired a Jewish revolt. It took them eight days to cleanse the temple, which Jews remember in the Feast of Hanukkah now. But it wasn't the last time. The Roman general Pompey, about 150 years later, entered the Holy of Holies in 63 BC. The emperor Caligula, who considered himself a god, tried to have a statue of himself erected in the temple in 40 AD. They knew the type. It had happened before and would likely happen again, only bigger. First century Jews and Christians believed that what had actually happened locally and repeatedly would happen, eventually happen globally and finally. There would be a great and final climax on the day of the Lord between God and the ultimate man of lawlessness leading to the ultimate moral apostasy and the Thessalonians believed it had started. It terrified them. But as concerned as Paul was for this event, he insists it just can't have started yet because the precursor events had not yet commenced. The, the day of the Lord cannot have started because the man of lawlessness has yet to appear. But if we haven't already gotten kind of weird this morning, anybody want to get weirder? <laughs> Let's do it. You see, Paul doesn't just clarify to the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord hasn't started yet. He explains why. It hadn't happened yet because of someone or something we might call the restrainer. Not the retainer. The restrainer. Paul reminds the Thessalonians of something they, like good apocalyptic people, already knew that there exists someone or something holding back the man of lawlessness. As he writes in verse 6, And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. The one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. I got to tell you, this is one of the most interesting verses in the entire New Testament. Apparently there exists someone or something that is somehow holding back the lawless one in the rebellion until the proper 
time. So the lawless one is ready to go, set to anoint himself as a god, leading the earth into mass apostasy, but he is somehow held back, strapped down. This is the only reference to anything like this in the New Testament. Paul doesn't even say that much about it because he actually assumes his readers know who he's referring to. He says, now you know what is holding him back. You know, right? You know. We don't even need to talk about it. You know. Paul even lightly scolds them for forgetting about it. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Dummies. And 2,000 years later, we're back here like, no, tell us the things. We weren't there. What, give us more. In fact, the riddle of the restrainer, it's so odd, it's so brief, and it's so incomplete that the great theologian Augustine has said, I frankly confess that the meaning of this verse completely escapes me. <laughs> That's Augustine. So, so we're going to solve this morning what Augustine couldn't. That's going to happen today. <laughs> now, there are lots of theories about the identity of the restrainer. Uh, maybe the restrainer is God, who's holding back the man of lawlessness. Uh, but that doesn't make sense, though, because Paul says the restrainer will be taken out of the way, and, you know, no one moves God out of the way. Excuse me, God. Uh, maybe the restrainer is the Roman government, holding back some evil warlord. But Rome's gone now. Uh, maybe the restrainer is the power of the gospel or the church, but Paul uses personal language here, suggesting that the restrainer is a being of some kind. People have their theories. The most compelling theory to me, though, is that the restrainer is the archangel Michael. You see, so much of Jewish apocalyptic theology is based on the Old Testament book of Daniel. And Daniel is a fascinating prophet who just sees things we don't. In his book, Daniel describes a heavenly conflict in which the armies of God, led by his servant Michael, are at war with evil forces. The events of that heavenly battle are somehow playing out on earth. So there's a conflict in heaven happening on earth, and, and Michael is described as playing this role precisely, preventing evil from realizing its full capacity on earth. And as God's designated protector, he is restraining evil from overwhelming the globe until the time is right. And that makes sense to me, but we just can't be sure because Paul isn't explicit about it. But our ignorance doesn't necessarily undermine Paul's point, which is that regardless of who the restrainer is, the time is not right. God has a plan. God has a timeline. We haven't reached that time. The lawless one has not yet been released. The comet has not yet hit. The zombies have not yet started their march. The rebellion has not yet begun. The end might be near, but it's just not here. So that's all that. All you ever wanted to know about the man of lawlessness and the unknown restrainer. Here's our question, though. Maybe you know our question. What's our question? So what? What does it mean for us that Paul tells the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord has not yet come? So what? Imagine telling your friends at work tomorrow what you learned in church this morning. Hey, guess what, Rhonda? The day of the Lord has not yet begun because the rebellion has not yet climaxed and the restrainer, who may or may not be the Archangel Michael, has not yet released the man of lawlessness. By the way, you want to come 
to church with me next Sunday? I'm like, no. <laughs> so what? What does this mean for your life and mine? Well, there are actually lots of so what's. Starting with the fact that although Paul is clear that the end of the world has not yet started, he does not intend for us to rest on our laurels while we wait for it to begin. You see, while we can know that the day of the Lord hasn't happened, we don't know when it will, and we need to be ready. Jesus makes this point repeatedly. In the Olivet Discourse, for example, Jesus warns his listeners, therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you must be ready. In fact, not only must we be ready for the great day of the Lord's arrival, but we must be ready for the challenges we face every day until then. You see, the day of the Lord may come suddenly, but it will not come without warning, and those warnings have already started. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. The man of lawlessness is not here, but lawlessness is. And as John writes later in the New Testament, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have already gone out into the world. Any such person is the Antichrist. So while we wait for the Antichrist, we must deal with the many, many Antichrists who are paving the way, leading people into deception and immorality. Right now, the devil is paving the way for his chosen agent to arrive, to be revealed at the proper time. I mean, every bad guy knows that timing is everything, right? Every bad guy knows that you got to wait until the pieces are set before you make your move. Over vacation, for example, my family uh, played a lot of this new board game called Secret Hitler. <laughs> Has anybody played Secret Hitler? It's a great game. Super fun. But Secret Hitler is this game in which someone gets a card designating them as Secret Hitler. And Secret Hitler is working with other secret Nazis who get their own cards against the forces of freedom and democracy. And secret Hitler, together with the secret Nazis, are positioning themselves and making changes to society, waiting for the perfect moment when they can unmask and take over the government. For most of the game, it's all happening in secret, though, and only the forces of democracy can stop Secret Hitler before it's too late. And if Secret Hitler becomes president, good loses. This is what the Bible's describing. There is a man of lawlessness who has not yet revealed himself because he's waiting for the perfect time. But he's not just waiting, he's positioning himself in secret to be exactly where he needs to be. Satan is manipulating the world so that the entrance of the lawless one makes sense. Historians will tell you this is how it happens. This is how Hitler actually rose to power. He manipulated millions of people over a very long time until the time was right and nobody could stop him. That's how this works. And here's what's scary. If you look real hard, you can maybe see it happening. As violence, fear, poverty, and war spread, the world is being more prepared to welcome a secret Hitler. As we grow more afraid, more desperate, more angry, 
We are more vulnerable to the forces of evil. I mean, how many politicians and kings and presidents have taken advantage of our fear and desperation, riding those waves to brutal reins of power? And here's the terrifying difference. The forces of democracy can't stop the man of lawlessness. This isn't a game where democracy can stop secret Hitler from running the board. Democracy can't stop the devil. Laws can't stop the devil. There is only one who can stop the devil. And it's the one who comes immediately after him. As Paul goes on. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow. With the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So yes, things have to get worse before they get better, but they won't get worse forever. And the arrival of the lawless one into the world will mean that we are just one quick step away from the entrance of the Lord, the judge who will wrap all things up and he will do so with nothing but his breath. In fact, I love this verse for that detail. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. The lawless one will appear, violent and bloodthirsty, ready to rule the earth, and then the Lord Jesus will arrive and blow him away. That's it. You thought you could get somewhere, man of lawlessness? Oh, no. That's the so what. Even though the day of the Lord is terrifying, and even though it will involve great lawlessness and immorality, and even though Satan will be manipulating the events of history through despots and antichrists, and even though this is all on its way, and we might even be in the middle of it, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear because it will happen according to God's plan, and because it will only presage the Lord's final arrival to do away with sin and evil and death once and for all. Basically, let me put Paul's point this way in sort of a takeaway statement. If I could generalize Paul's point for us this morning, I think it's this. An uncertain future is nothing to fear for those who have faith. An uncertain future is just nothing to fear for those who have faith. You see, we all have uncertain futures. And I'm not just talking about when and how the man of lawlessness will arrive. Not only do we not know when and how the world is going to end, I mean, we don't know how today is going to end. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but today could be the worst day of your life. I get up every morning and sort of prepare myself for the possibility that it might be. Who knows what's going to happen to me today? God knows I don't. I mean, if the man of lawlessness doesn't appear today, something will. Lawlessness will get me one way or another. But an uncertain future is nothing to fear for those who have faith in the goodness and the power of God. For even as Jesus comes to judge those who are perishing, he's coming to save those who believe. This is what Paul says. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. No matter what we face on earth, we can be saved from it. It's like one of my favorite scenes from Lord of the Rings, and I apologize profusely for using two Tolkien references in a row week to week. (laughs) Yes. In The Return of the King, the, the men of Gondor are behind the gates of Minas Tirith protecting their city. Banging on the door 
is a violent, unknown monster. Lawlessness and death surround them. A long-feared enemy, having been restrained, is about to break through. The soldiers are terrified and running for cover. They are, to say the least, unsettled and alarmed. But Gandalf is on his horse, mustering the forces. He lines them up and he calls out to them. And he says, you are men of Gondor. Whatever comes through that gate, stand your ground. That's the Lord's call to us this morning. We stand behind the gate. We don't know when it will break. We don't know what's on the other side. If it's not the man of lawlessness, it's something. Maybe it's cancer on the other side of your gate. Maybe it's unemployment on the other side of your gate. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's depression or some other such mental illness. Maybe it's global thermal nuclear war. If it's not the Antichrist coming for you, it's something. But an uncertain future is nothing to fear for those who have faith. Because nothing happens apart from the timing and the plan of God. And even as lawlessness and immorality increase in the world, the clock kicks down to the final arrival of the one who comes to save it. So maybe we are living in the end times. But even if we are, remember, you are men and women of Gondor. You are Christians saved from sin and death by the blood of Jesus who is coming again. Whatever comes through that gate and whenever it does, you stand your ground. Stand your ground knowing that one day Jesus will arrive to take a stand for you.